When we <clears throat> we come together to practice and to listen to the Patimokha on the Oposita days, it's always a good opportunity to come back to review the reasons why we ordain as Buddhist monks to re-establish our commitment to the training, devotion to the Triple Gem, to the Dhamma Vinaya. Because as Buddhist monks we live a very unique lifestyle. We keep our precepts, our follow our training rules all the time. Middle of the day, middle of the night, every day. You wear the same uniform every day. <clears throat> you develop the same skills of meditation and contemplation every day. But obviously our mind is subject to many different influences, external and internal. We're working through our karma. Even as we practice, we're making fresh karma, good karma. But we're also working through our karma, our karmic attachments, the way they manifest for each individual <coughs> we can't always choose what comes up as we lead the life of a bhikkhu. Our karma brings different feelings, emotions, experiences to us every day. On the outside, we can't always predict or control what's going to come to us from the world, the people around us, the world, the conditions. Can't always predict what particular attachments, cravings will pop up into the mind in different situations, moods and feelings, reactions to things and so on. So the life of the bhikkhu has to be founded on patience, endurance, and then commitment to training, to bringing up and cultivating the skills that we need to meet with our karma and vibhaka karma, to meet with it wisely, skillfully, get through it, ultimately for the ending of all karma, for Nibbāna. When the mind is no longer making any karma. So we devote ourselves to the training and keep re-establishing that devotion, reviewing our 
Vinaya and then applying ourselves to the basic training rules and practices and meditations every day. Luckily we have a good teacher, we have Ajahn Chah and his system that we has been handed down to us that we we can follow very simple direct teachings to help live this life skillfully and developing contentment fewness of wishes as a bhikkhu the simple guidelines that he emphasized over and over again so that we can go deeper into our practice and not always be concerned with the externals of trying to make life more comfortable on the outside and getting more, getting what we want. But accepting as a bhikkhu we have to be more patient and make do with what requisites and things we have to use come our way without always seeking more or different or better. <coughs> That's a practice in itself because of the nature of craving in our karma. The mind will often be seeking more, wanting things to be better or different than they are. Whether it's food, accommodation, things we use in a daily basis. learning to find a balance of contentment, fewness of wishes, so that we can be at our ease in every situation, whatever requisites are available, whatever the situation in the monastery we're in, the routine, the weather, the lifestyle, to learn to be at ease within each situation so that we can carry on practicing to be at ease with other people, except other people, the other monastics around us, the way they are, their character and their practice. So that we can be at ease to go deeper into our own practice, into our own minds. We keep having to learn how to do that, to come back to our own minds, establish mindfulness, present moment awareness. So as we heard in the talk from Lumpur Wen, it's very easy for us to get caught into the drunken Dhamma. He said a little bit of knowledge can be the cause for the drunken Dhamma to arise, meaning we as we know our experience when we come to meditate, come to sit, walk meditation, we have enough discipline to stop talking and stop distracting ourselves with other things. We have enough effort and mindfulness to bring ourselves to sit, to walk meditation. But then as we're sitting, the mind has a little bit of mindfulness, a little bit of knowledge, and away it goes. And we sit there proliferating thinking endlessly about different issues. Or as we walk meditation, thinking endlessly 
but not thinking as in contemplation with mindfulness and wisdom, but a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of mindfulness, and then the drunken Dhamma takes over and the mind gets intoxicated with its own ideas and concepts, moods, views and opinions, and off it goes. And we can spend a whole hour sitting outwardly to the world, we're sitting in meditation, but inwardly maybe just thinking a lot. Falling asleep, thinking a lot, worrying, getting angry, desiring different things and so on, proliferating. And this is where we have to refine our efforts in the practice, being willing to work with our own stubborn mind to bring up more mindfulness, to re-establish awareness in the present moment. As the Buddha said, to learn to let go of our delighting in or aversion for the world. In the world we contact through our senses, sights, sounds, taste, smell, touch, and all the memories based on that. When mindfulness is weak, we can endlessly fantasize, proliferate, react with different emotions to the sense contact or to our memories of previous sense contact. So we have to be very equally stubborn, just as the kilesis craving and attachment is stubborn, well the Dhamma has to be equally stubborn. You have to develop an equal amount of effort to re-establish mindfulness in the present moment over and over again. Just as on the Upposita we re-establish our mindfulness of the Vinaya. If we've forgotten, when we meditate we re-establish our mindfulness over and over again. And obviously in every posture, not just sitting or walking, every posture, every activity, we are aiming for that, to be patient enough and put enough effort in to keep re-establishing mindfulness. This is what will cut through the intoxication with sense objects and all the emotions, particularly the negative emotions that come from that. The attachment to feeling, pleasure and pain, and all the proliferation that comes from that. So learning to be content on the outside with our situation as we find it, the way we are, our physical body, our requisites, the place, the company we keep, and then learning to be content on the inside content to establish mindfulness, whatever the mental activity going on is. We don't have to keep judging ourselves, but just learning to develop mindfulness so that we can witness the way things are mentally. Anicca dukkha anatta, feelings arising, passing away, memories arising, passing away. Thought formations rising, passing away. To put more effort
effort into that so we really find a refuge in our own practice looking back at this body and mind but from a place of wisdom peace rather than always getting caught up into it into our emotions and our thought patterns then it's just about <clears throat> being willing to keep putting effort and bringing up the effort and being patient with whatever obstacles we find we can't really blame others or the world around us in the end it's our own effort we have to learn how to skillfully bring up effort to cultivate the wholesome to abandon the unwholesome and like Ajahn Chah used to say about the man who came saying that the Dhamma just seems so profound, so deep too deep for me, for me, my mind to fathom and Ajahn Chah gave the simile of the person looking for water in the ground you can't really say the wa water is too deep you just have to say your effort is not yet up to it your arm is not long enough the effort you put into getting that water is not enough therefore you haven't got the water yet but to say it's too deep you're just limiting yourself from the word go in the end you might say it's an excuse so we're learning to practice with this mind however difficult it may seem or however much mental proliferation we have to deal with different character traits and moods and attachments that come up it's up to us to keep re-establishing effort bring up mindfulness in our, and use the training the system of training to our advantage to keep working on that Like Ajahn Chah, the Lumpur Wen talk we heard, he's talking about how through continued practice, when we really put effort and develop some continuity of mindfulness, then we start to experience the stillness of mind, samadhi. The sense of the mind going to stillness, aware but not proliferating, not creating anything out of experience not caught up into a lot of discursive thinking but just knowing 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 based on the barikama pawana barikama object that we use he used the phrase titiputang the, the mind going down to the sort of basic awareness the undefiled basic awareness Ajahn Chah sometimes used a phrase reminiscent of that, it sounds a bit different, Sikhi Puto. The mind, the undefiled or unproliferating mind, it's just a witness, this quality of continuity of mindfulness, samadhi, where the mind can witness itself, look back at itself, just witness 
defilements arising, passing away without getting caught up into them. So knowing a defilement as a defilement, but also knowing the defilement and the mind are two separate things. Defilements are akandukha, just like we call akandukha bhikkhus, come to visit the monastery. Defilements are akandukhehi, kilesehi, they come into the mind. Then they go out again. When conditions change, when mindfulness is established, wisdom is established, the mind, the kilesa, is seen as an dukkha anatta. It's not self, it's just a temporary visitor. So we don't have to judge or get caught up into them or worry too much about them. We just know them for what they are. That's our aim have enough ease and peace of mind and training our mind in mindfulness and then wisdom, insight to get to that point to see that. Well obviously sometimes we have to use more effort. Some kilesas are easy, we can just note them, quickly let them go. Others have to be restrained, restrained physically, restrained mentally. You know, the most extreme Defilements cause us to act and speak as well as just think. <clears throat> so part of our Vinaya training is actually to restrain the senses, restrain our actions so that they don't display those defilements that come up. Sometimes we have to restrain ourselves to the point where we can see the body physically shaking through the restraint. So when you're very angry and you want to say or do something destructive, but you have enough awareness to restrain that, the mind might physically, uh, the body might physically be shaking, but you don't act on any impulse to destroy or harm, say or do something to another person or physical object. Then after a while the shaking stops, the mind goes back to normalcy. You can see how the mind can proliferate the body, condition the body. Same with lust. You can have so much lust that to restrain it, the body is shaking. You want to indulge the lust through the body. The mind is looking for its way. The defilements have come up strongly. But we have enough restraint to say no. There's still shaking the vibration of the the lust affecting the body. Could be just in small ways, like the eyes that want to look and look again, but we force them to turn away. Could be the desire to speak, desire to look, desire to physically indulge lust. It might require us to stop physically stop ourselves. And one monk said he had one when he was a young monk he had so much lust. One night he was writhing one way, then writhing another way. The whole body was completely inflamed. It's like he's in a straitjacket in a mental hospital. He's just determined not to give in to his lust. So he's writhing around, rolling from one side to the other, till eventually it subsided. 
Sometimes it's like that. Other times it's just small things. Restraining the eyes, turning the ears away. When you want to indulge the ears to listen to something we like or listen with aversion to somebody else's words we don't like. We just avert our attention, attention elsewhere, cut off the ears, cut off the eyes, cut off the ears. If we're eating, cut off the taste buds. Might want to indulge in a certain taste. Sometimes it's all right to eat food that we enjoy because it's healthy and good for us. Other times when we know we're just indulging, don't really need to eat so much. Maybe we have to cut off the taste buds. Stop eating that thing. Sometimes it's good to do, even just for one mouthful. You've got one mouthful of food that you enjoy. Just see if you can set it aside. Put it in the spittoon or just put it back in the bowl but, and leave it and don't eat it during that meal. <coughs> just to see how to practice restraint when you have a desire to indulge in a taste where you just put just one mouthful. Not a whole bowlful, just one mouthful, you put it aside, leave it. Or give it away to an animal or another person. Maybe when we go to bed, we like to indulge in the feeling of lying down in a warm bed, especially in the cold weather. When you wake up, you can see the desire just to indulge in being under the warm blankets. Set aside that desire sometimes, just get up anyway. Even if it's cold, do some exercise or walking or turn the heater on. Find ways to train yourself not to indulge desires or aversion. This is our practice and you learn from this. Ajahn Chah said it actually becomes a pleasure, a form of amusement to watch your mind as you frustrate its desire to indulge. Obviously that's a refined Dhamma, when you have enough mindfulness, sila is established, mindfulness is steady, and maybe it's on a more refined level, just little mental moments of indulgence. You're bringing up the Dhamma to cut them off. But you know that it's good for you and your mind is experiencing maybe some feelings of peace and even pity and sukha as it's liberated from that particular desire as you let, let it go, frustrate it. So it's a lot easier at that level. Maybe just the desire to think of something in an unwholesome way with some attraction or aversion, but you'll just catch it and your mind just says, no, I won't go into that way of thinking, I'll just drop it. And you get a little sense of relief as the mind lets go. It can actually be fun because you also are mindful and you're understanding at that moment that you're freeing your mind from a defilement, however small. You're doing some real good for yourself, even for the world. Even though that practice is going on internally, maybe nobody else knows, but you're reducing the amount of defiled 
mind states in the world by one unit at that moment. So you're actually helping the world, reducing the ignorance and the attachments in the world by one unit at that moment. Even if no one else knows or you never tell anyone, it's still the truth. If you get into that habit, then it can become enjoyable because you know it's good for you, even though it's difficult and requires effort. Obviously, sometimes just as defilements can come up very strongly and overwhelm us, well, similarly, the Dhamma can come up very strongly and you have very profound experiences. Maybe not every day, but once in a while you have some deep sense of letting go, liberating the mind and the heart from some previously held attachment, some issue that was bothering you and then now you realize you're free from it, or some insight, understanding more deeply about the nature of defilement, how it conditions the mind, but now you're able to let go of that conditioning process. So you have some profound insight, maybe some real peace, Piti Sukha, some real brightness of mind arises. They say the Piti and Sukha of insight is even more profound than the Piti and Sukha of Samadhi. Because it's actually cleansing the mind, purifying the mind. It's like in the old days when we lived in Thailand, the very poorest monasteries, often the whole monastery depended on a a well for its water, a deep well dug down into the forest. Even for drinking, often if the water was a reasonably good quality, you'd use that for your drinking water. So that one well was vital to the life of the monastery. So the monks had to invest a lot of time in protecting the well, just to put mesh over it, make a lid for it, so that things couldn't drop in. You have a net to scoop out leaves or little creatures, often frogs or toads or mice would fall in. If you let them stay, sometimes they drown and they contaminate the water. Couldn't let rubbish or chemicals go in. Even excrement or urine, you have to be very careful. No one could go to the toilet Anyone anywhere near that well. And animals, you'd have to try and stop them being around that area. Because the well was the only source of water for the monastery. But then over time, it's just natural. You, a period of a year, you get, sooner or later, you get little bits of rubbish, contamination. So you have to clean the well out, meaning you have to physically go down into the well, bring up all the water and before the groundwater has started to refill the well you completely go down to the bottom level and scrape out any gunk, dead bodies or anything, any pollutants, you have to scrape them out in a bucket, completely clean the well once in a while. The effect of practices like that, both samadhi and wisdom, you're cleaning out your jitta. Obviously samadhi, it's temporary, but it's like temporarily cleaning out the well. You go down right to the base level of the mind, if you can, through the continuity of mindfulness, to the point where it's still and quiet. 
bright. Even if it's only for a few minutes, you experience that contentment of stillness. It's like cleaning out the well. Then as the mind starts to proliferate again, you catch each mood, each mental state based on different feelings, sense contact. And you start to contemplate. You contemplate and each dukkha anatta as you follow along with the mental proliferation that re-emerges out of the peaceful stillness. And a lot of it you might be able to catch and let go of different reactions, habitual reactions. The drunken dhamma that Lumpur was talking about. You catch it and so you're sobering up instantly. And because of the cleansing effect of samadhi, it's like that well, you've cleaned the well out, well then for a good long time every little bit of dirt or gunk you see very quick, quickly because the water is now clear and clean. But you have to keep guard, otherwise your well water will gradually become contaminated again. Your mind becomes contaminated and you might start to re-establish old attachments, even create new attachments, new desires, new attachments, fresh karmic conditioning that clogs up your mind, sullies the mind, blemishes the mind. So a lot of our practice is about to keep reaffirming, <coughs> re-establishing Commitment to the practice, re-establishing and reviewing our sila, re-establishing mindfulness, bringing the mind to a places of stillness with samadhi and then training over and over again in contemplation, contemplating the mind, contemplating defilement, contemplating ways to abandon defilement. So in a moment we can do some parita chanting and then we'll have the patimoka. I'll leave you with those reflections tonight.